Well, hey everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. In this episode of our podcast, we're continuing on in our sermon series called Moving Forward. And what we're talking about throughout the series is what we need to do whenever we face times of transition or change in our lives. And we all experience those moments in our lives. And a lot of times when we're experiencing these changes, these transitions, we're not exactly sure what we're supposed to be doing now. And that even includes us as followers of Jesus. Well, in this episode, we're going to be reminded that that no matter what else is happening in our lives, that if we follow Jesus, we always have a clear calling no matter what. So let's get right into this episode, and we'll be talking about what it is we're supposed to be doing right now. In July of 2007, I officially began my career in ministry. So that means that not that long ago, I celebrated my 15th anniversary of being a pastor at a church. Even though my journey in ministry has led me in a lot of different directions over the last 15 years, I can still remember what it was like to go into my very first church office my very first day of work. I still remember pulling into the church parking lot early on a Monday morning with my car loaded down with boxes that were filled with everything that I thought I might need inside of my new office space. I still remember the sweat that was dripping down my face as I lugged the boxes out of my car and into that church building on that hot July day. I still remember cranking the AC down once everything was unloaded so that I could cool off and stop sweating. And I still remember how long it took for me to empty out all of those boxes and get my office set up just right. Now, I was just starting out in ministry, so it's not like I had a whole lot of stuff. Not like today. Over the last 15 years, I've accumulated hundreds of books, dozens of commentaries, and one really nice set of Bible dictionaries. But back then, I had maybe a couple of dozens of books, and almost all of them were required reading that I had to do for either a class in college or in seminary. But even though I only had a couple of dozen books, that doesn't mean that I didn't need a couple of hours to try to meticulously arrange them on the bookshelves that line one one wall in that particular office space. And I didn't just arrange those books. I arranged them and I rearranged them over and over again because I was trying to make my meager collection of books look much larger than it actually was. But even after I had spent a couple of hours trying to fill in all of the empty space on the shelves of the books that I had, the shelves still looked pretty empty. So that meant it was time for me to break out my personal mementos and start putting them on the shelves. Now, again, I'll remind you that this happened when I was first starting in ministry. So I wasn't at the point then where I was ready to fully embrace my inner geek like I have since. So that means I didn't put out any action figures or bobblehead dogs in my office my first day there. They might have fired me if they saw all of that. Who knows? The only personal mementos I had were pictures. And still, I took a lot of time placing them and rearranging them over and over again until I was finally satisfied with the way that my bookshelves looked. And once I was satisfied with the way that those bookshelves looked, Look, I grabbed a hammer and a couple of nails, and I went about hanging up my college diploma and my ordination certificate on the wall that was right behind my desk. And I did that because I figured it wasn't going to be long before someone from the church wanted to come and visit with a new pastor in his office, and I wanted it to look like I at least had some idea of what I was doing. If nothing else, I could point at the certificates and the college diploma to say that I did. 
Well, once I had done all of those things, I plopped down in the swivel chair that was sitting behind my church desk, and I took it all in. And as I sat there looking at my new office that I had just spent a few hours getting all set up, I thought that it looked like I belonged there, sitting behind the pastor's desk in my new church. But the reality is, that day was years in the making for me. That day was a realization of a dream that had resonated inside of me for most of my life. A dream that had become concrete for me almost a decade earlier when I was sitting four rows back in the sanctuary that I had practically grown up in, in my home church on Sunday night. And on that Sunday night, my church was observing Boy Scout Sunday. So we were honoring and recognizing a local Boy Scout troop during the service. When the preacher stood up that night to start preaching his message, he talked about the Boy Scouts' value of service and how that aligned with the kingdom of God. But as he spoke that night, I soon realized that he wasn't just talking to a handful of Boy Scouts that were sitting in our congregation. That night it felt like God was speaking directly to me. So when the sermon ended and he offered the invitation, I came walking down the aisle as quickly as I could. And I told that pastor, I found that God was calling me into the ministry, that God was calling me to serve his kingdom. God was calling me to serve his church. When the service let out, when it was dismissed, I had at least a few dozen people who came down the aisle, shook my hand, and affirmed God's calling in my life, saying that they felt this is exactly what God wanted me to do. So from there, I spent the next four years of my life at Georgetown College earning my bachelor's degree in religion. And then I started working on my master's of divinity degree from the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Along the way, I spent two and a half years working as a youth minister at a small church in the outskirts of Scott County, Kentucky. And I even spent, spent six months serving as the interim pastor of this church. But it wasn't until that Monday morning in 2007, when I was sitting in my first church office for the first time, that I felt like I was finally in a place where I could fulfill God's calling in my life. It was then that I felt like I was ready to be a minister. Or at least I thought I was. That's because I had spent the last eight years preparing for that moment. Over the previous eight years, I had sat in classes in college and seminary where we studied the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and all of the books in between, and I had developed my own personal theology along the way. I also had classes in church administration and church history so I could understand how the church had been operating for 2,000 years. I had the opportunity to preach at at least a dozen different churches all across the state of Kentucky proclaiming God's good news to each of those congregations. I even had the opportunity to lead in a couple of communion services and perform a couple of baptisms, too. So that Monday morning finally rolled around, where I was officially the pastor of a church. I was excited. And my mind was swirling with all the possibilities of how God could use me and use, and use my ministry to grow God's kingdom. So as I sat in that office, I imagined how God would use the messages that I would preach to, to challenge and inspire everyone who would someday hear them. I imagined the conversations that I would have bringing comfort to people as I met with them around their hospital beds. I imagined how God would use me to help people on their journey of faith. I imagined how God would use me as I presided over communion services and baptisms, weddings, and funerals. And on that day, 
as I was on the cusp of beginning my career in ministry, I was so excited about it. I couldn't wait to get started. I was ready to go out and change the world. I was ready for my ministry to begin. But do you know what I actually did that first day after I finished putting everything up on my bookshelves and making my office look pretty? I sat in that swivel chair spinning around in circles, wondering, what now? What now? Even though I spent the previous eight years preparing for that moment, and even though I was completely ready to begin serving as a pastor, I was entering into a new phase, a new era in my life. And as I was entering into that new phase and that new era, I just wasn't really sure what I was supposed to be doing in that moment. I was wondering, what now? And we've all had those moments. We've all had those what now moments when we find ourselves in a situation where we're just not exactly sure what we're supposed to be doing. You may have had a what now moment when you were heading out to your car after you finished up some grocery shopping. You loaded up all your groceries into the trunk, you climbed around, you went into the driver's seat, pulled out the key, put it in the ignition, tried to start your car, but it wouldn't turn over. So as you were standing there in the parking lot looking under the hood of your car, while the ice cream was melting in your trunk, you were wondering, what now? Maybe you've had a what now moment when you were gone on vacation. You had the opportunity to go on a dream vacation, but when you arrived at your final destination, you learned that your luggage didn't make the trip with you. So as you were standing at the airport pondering the possibility of spending an entire week in a tropical paradise without a change of clothes or a drop of sunscreen, you wondered, what now? Maybe it happened the first night that you brought your newborn child home, and you couldn't figure out how to get him to stop crying. Or it may have happened for you when your daughter started taking calculus in high school and you could no longer help her with her math homework. Or maybe it happened when you had your family on the way over for Thanksgiving dinner, and you went to check on the turkey that was in the oven, only to realize that that great big bird was still frozen solid. We've all had those moments where we haven't known what we were supposed to do. Those moments where we've wondered, what now? And if we're being completely honest, I think there's many of us here at Melbourne Heights who are having our own kind of what now moment right now in our church, because we know that in just about a month, we are going to be moving into our new church home. We're going to be moving into our new church space, and even though just about all of us are every bit as excited to move into our new church home as I was to move into my very first church office 15 years ago, we're not exactly sure what we're supposed to be doing as we move forward as a church. So what are we supposed to be doing right now? What are we supposed to be doing as we enter into this next phase, this next era in the history of Melbourne Heights? Well, to help us answer that question, I want to take a look at a time when Jesus' closest followers, his disciples, had a what-now moment of their own. And for Jesus' disciples, they had this what-now moment in the aftermath of Easter. So this what-now moment happens for them after the women had gone down to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial. It happened after the women found that the tomb was empty because Jesus had been resurrected, because Jesus is alive. But in the Gospel of John, or John's biography of Jesus, we find out what the disciples were doing while all of this was, was happening. And John tells us that the disciples were hidden away behind locked doors because they were afraid. 
And as they're hidden away behind those locked doors, it's not hard to imagine the disciples looking around the room at each other, quietly asking, what now? And what happens when Jesus appears to his disciples? And Jesus shows them that he is alive, that he is still active and still at work in this world. And Jesus reminds them what they as his followers are supposed to be doing, even as they're trying to wrap their minds around everything that has just taken place. So you would think that 40 days later, when Jesus ascends into the heavens, that the disciples would know exactly what they were supposed to be doing as they moved into that new era and new chapter in their lives. It's like you'd think that a guy who spent eight years preparing to enter into the ministry would know what he should be doing his first day in his church office. And if you've got a Bible close by and you'll grab it, you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 1. I can show you what I mean. In Acts chapter 1, we're going to see how the disciples respond when Jesus ascends into the heavens. So we'll just take a look at Acts 1 together. This is what Luke, the author of the book of Acts, tells us, starting in verse 1. Luke writes this. Says Theophilus, the first scroll I wrote concerned everything that Jesus did and taught from the beginning right up to the day that he was taken up into heaven. Before he was taken up, working in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus instructed the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed them that he was alive with many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them about God's kingdom while they were eating together. He ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. He said, this is what you heard from me. John baptized with water, but in only a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As a result, those who had gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? Jesus replied, It isn't for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After Jesus said these things, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going away, and as they were staring toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood next to them. They said, Galileans, why are you standing here looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go. So the passage that we just read begins with the disciples. So the disciples are with Jesus. The disciples are sharing a meal with Jesus. They're listening as Jesus teaches. They're asking Jesus questions. And you get a feeling when you're reading the beginning of this passage that the disciples feel like Jesus is going to be with them forever. I think that's why they ask Jesus if he's going to restore the kingdom of Israel now in this passage. But then, Jesus is gone. Jesus ascends into the heavens. He returns to sit at God's right hand. And what do the disciples do? They're staring up at the sky, wondering what now. But here's the thing. Even though Jesus had just ascended into the heavens, even though the disciples were now on their own on this earth, they already knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing. Because the disciples had just spent the last three years of their lives following 
Jesus. They just spent the last three years sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him as he taught them about what the kingdom of God is like. They spent the last three years watching as Jesus performed miracles, showing them what this world is supposed to be like. Some of them were there when Jesus was crucified, and all of them saw Jesus after he was resurrected. So they knew what they were supposed to be doing because Jesus had already shown them and Jesus had already told them what they were supposed to be doing. And even if they hadn't experienced that over the previous three years, right before Jesus ascends into the heavens, the book of Matthew tells us what Jesus told the disciples. This is exactly what Jesus says to them. Even as they're standing there wondering what's happening now, Jesus tells them they're supposed to. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And you know what? That's what the disciples do. It doesn't take long before they stop staring at the sky. It doesn't take long before they stop asking, what now? And they start moving forward. And as they move forward, they go into Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, sharing the good news of Jesus. As a matter of fact, we're told that when one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, preaches his very first sermon, that 3,000 people come forward to be baptized. But Peter and the rest of the disciples, they don't stop at just baptizing other folks. They make disciples out of them. They establish churches in every town and every city that they do ministry inside of. And even after they leave these towns and these cities to continue sharing the good news of Jesus around the world, the disciples write letters to these churches to help them continue to learn everything that Jesus had commanded them. And a lot of those letters make up a good portion of our New Testament today. But what does all this have to do with us? Right? We're not Jesus' first disciples. Jesus hasn't just ascended into the heavens. But it doesn't mean that we're not having a what now moment right now. We're looking toward the future of our church and we're wondering what we're supposed to be doing as we enter into this next phase, this next chapter in our story together. Because, yeah, in just a few weeks, we're going to be moving into a new space, our new church home at 11,003 Bluegrass Parkway. We want to know we're supposed to do as we move forward. We want to know what we're supposed to do as we enter this new phase. We want to know what's what now. But here's the thing. Even as we are asking these kind of questions, we don't have to answer them all on our own. The reality is that God's already told us what we're supposed to be doing. God wants us to hear the exact same message that Jesus' disciples heard right before he ascended into the heavens. God wants us to know that we are supposed to be making disciples wherever we are. That's what the church has been about for 2,000 years. That's what the church will always be about. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's what the church exists for. You see, the church isn't just about the building that you meet in, the location that you're at. It's not about how comfortable the seats are in the sanctuary or anything else that happens inside the walls of a place we call church. No. The church exists to make disciples. That means that we, 
as followers of Jesus, as part of the church, we exist to make disciples. We're supposed to tell people about Jesus. We're supposed to help people learn how they can follow Jesus, teaching them everything that Jesus commanded us. That's never going to change. Our purpose, our mission, our existence is never going to change. So even as we're standing here wondering, what now? What are we supposed to do as we enter into this next chapter, this next phase in the history of our church? We know the answer to that question. We're supposed to go, and we're supposed to make disciples. So let's remember that. Above everything else that we do as a church, we are always here to make disciples. That's what we need to focus on. As we come to you in this time of prayer, we are wondering what it is that we're supposed to be doing right now. We know that things are happening beside the scenes, and that as we're getting ready to move into this new space, that we're going to call home as a church. But as we get ready to enter into this new home, into this new chapter in our the life of our church, we wonder what are we supposed to be doing now. We have our minds filled with possibilities about what our ministry, what our missions can look like in this space, God. But let us never forget why we exist as a church. We exist to make disciples. We exist to help people find you, to teach them who you are and everything that Jesus commanded us. We exist to help people follow you. So no matter what the future holds for our church, no matter what missions, no matter what ministries, no matter what things and programs we try to do, let us never lose sight of our purpose. The church has and always will be to make disciples. So God, help us to do that. Help us to lead other people to you. Help us as we try to help them grow in their faith. Help us be who you made us to be. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast. And I hope that this episode has challenged you to remember that no matter what else is happening in your life, that you are always called to make disciples if you're a follower of Jesus. So no matter what's happening, no matter what changes or transitions you're facing, you always know what you're supposed to be doing. Well, this episode does wrap up our series called Moving Forward. And in our next episode, we're going to start into a brand new series of sermons where we're going to be talking about the story of the prodigal son. But we're not just going to focus in on the prodigal son. We're going to be thinking about the way that the father shows his love to both of his sons in the story. And it's going to show us how we as followers of Jesus should treat people who have wandered away from our faith and how we need to act as we continue to follow God in our lives. So I hope that you'll join us when our next episode drops next Tuesday morning. Morning. As always, if you subscribe to our podcast, that episode will be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. But you don't have to wait till next Tuesday to join us for worship. We'd love to have you come and worship with us on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time on our church website at mhbclouisville.com slash live. Well, until next week, I hope that you have a great week. I will be praying for you, and we'll see you back here soon for another sermon podcast.